Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish egotistical or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. It comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Let's jump on today's topic. You know, we often explore happiness and well-being and living a thriving life inversely, and we kind of back into it by talking about subjects such as what's getting in our way, what is preventing us from achieving the successes, finding that air quote happiness that we are all seeking. And there are a myriad of incredible researchers and adventurers and scientists out there who are researching things just like this. And my guest today is Sarah Lewis. She is a cultural historian and a Dubois Fellow at Harvard University. She is the author of The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery, published by Simon & Schuster. It is a layered, story-driven investigation of how innovation, discovery, and the creative process are all spurned on by advantages gleaned from the improbable, the unlikely, and even failure. And I want to just Um, toot her horn a little bit more because Sarah Lewis has served on President Obama's Arts Policy Committee. She is a trustee of Creative Time, the uh, CUNY Graduate Center, the Brearley School, and the Andy Warhol Foundation of the Visual Arts. She has also held curatorial positions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Tate Modern in London. Good morning, Sarah, and thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, Lisa. What an honor it is to be on this show. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it is a pleasure because I love what you are doing. I love the research that you are doing, the spin that you are giving on how we find that joyful place in our lives, that sometimes it comes through the unexpected. It comes through the failures, the disappointments, the the hard knocks and the skin knees. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The book is entitled The Rise, really, because I wanted to honor the capacity of the human spirit. And when you look at the life stories of inventors, entrepreneurs, and artists and athletes, you often find that they really did derive irreplaceable advantages from difficult circumstances. And I thought it was about time that we really focus on how we can all learn from that. Beautiful. You you write about athletes, entrepreneurs, explorers, Nobel Prize winning physicists, and notable artists, both living and past, that they've been propelled to mastery um, by several things. Talk a little bit about the ingredients to success. Mm, great question. 
what I started to notice when I looked at icons like William Faulkner or Paul Cezanne or Nobel Prize-winning scientists was that they were not fixated on success, meaning a label that the world confers on you for an achievement, but instead mastery. If success is an event, mastery is a journey. What they were focused on were all of the near wins that would allow them to kind of course correct and do better the next time. For example, Paul Cezanne didn't sign 90% of his paintings because he felt that they were all near wins. Of course, those works are now acclaimed by you know, various art historians and in different museums. When William Faulkner, for example, published The Sound and the Fury, he didn't feel that the work met his own goal, despite the praise it was being given. So he rewrote sections of that book and then published that as an appendix to the novel's later editions. So it's all to say that what I found in looking at these individuals, over 150 over the course of my four years of research, was that mastery was their goal. And mastery, I think, is what we really are all seeking, not merely the label the world confers on us with the word success. I agree with you wholeheartedly because when we are self-mastered, when we have the ability to take dominion over our lives, whether it's through our creativity, uh, through our relationships, uh, Mm -hmm. through achieving goals and a life that we um, aspire to, it takes on a very different meaning, that it's not about just having another egg that we get to put in our basket. It implies that there's much more of an experiential process going on. Exactly. It really does get back to this notion of authentic happiness. You know, it's an internal landscape that you're walking on when you are engaged with mastery. It's about closing that gap for yourself between where you are and where you want to go, regardless of what the world says about your achievements. And I think that puts us in touch with our deepest self. In fact, it really taps into the true nature, our true nature of self. And Mm -hmm. what can be said about the creative human endeavors that we pursue? Well, what I found is we often tend to think of human endeavors as success built upon success. When you look at Nobel Prize winning discoveries, athletes who are standing on Olympic you know, podiums winning gold medals, is that their journey is really about corrections over time, kind of the way that an arrow you know, goes towards its target on a curved line. That's really what human endeavor looks like. For me, the process of writing The Rise made me realize that we need to rethink the true story of triumph and mastery and endeavor to include all the circumstances we would rather avoid that allow for these beautiful corrections that offer these irreplaceable advantages. And even failure needs to become part of our conversation. Um, One time I interviewed Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Happiness Project, and she talked about wanting to experience the fun of failure. And I think that this is an important concept to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. Why should we revel in our blunders? Well, there are gains, you know, lessons, insights that we arrive at when we do engage with blunders that can come no other way. Now, I should be clear, the word failure, it's hard to talk about without dealing with how much of a misnomer it really is in our lives. The term failure was first meant as a term for bankruptcy in the 19th century in America. And it was not meant to apply to identity, you know. But we use this word anyway. And when we do, I think we kind of need to qualify it because life is not as static as bankruptcy, right? We never reach a dead end. And I think that's why the word becomes a forced fit. There are blameworthy failures. They're praiseworthy failures. They're brilliant failures, you know. When you look at the lives of scientists, of anyone who's doing something creative, none of their work can come from an experience that doesn't involve the potential for failure. Why? Because if that weren't the case, they wouldn't be taking a risk, and risk is what allows us to go into new terrain. Failure is a difficult word, I know, and in some countries in particular to engage with, but it's really critical for really rethinking the true nature of triumph. 
Well, I like what you just said about about the word failure. Uh, in, in my practice, I often speak with clients about instead of looking at what they've experienced as failure, perhaps it can be reframed to just be a limited success or an opportunity for education or an opportunity mm -hmm. to learn something about themselves that they had not known before. That's right. And in fact, most individuals I interviewed, whether it's Ben Saunders or, you know, historical figures I would look at from Samuel Morse, Frederick Douglass, no one called their experience a failure. People always created another word for it. <laughs> <Even> though... <laughs> I, I like it. I, I, I do like it. How are innovation, success, and new concepts found in the most unlikely of places? Well, we find um, all of these different traits in people's life stories when we start to look at them more fully, not tell the sort of sanitized version of them. For example, how many people know that Martin Luther King received C's in oratory class during seminary, right? And went on to lead this nation with the power of his spoken truth, you know. How many of us know that Fred Astaire in the 1930s received this as the response to his audition for RKO? Can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little, and then went on <laughs> to do what he did. You know, Duke Ellington would say, I merely took the energy it takes to pout and wrote some blues. You know, Thomas Edison told his assistant, incredulous at the inventor's repeated attempts to invent the incandescent light bulb, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. When we, st <laughs> we start to Brilliant. The truth, I love it. You know, all these different stories are in the lives of our icons who we mainly look to for examples of triumph. But what they also teach us is that failure is as important. All these difficult circumstances are as important. What is not being said about major achievements in our world? Is it what you've just shared, really, that how many, how many failures or how many blunders lead up to that ultimate success, or is there more? Well, uh, that's a large part of it. But it's not as uh, neat and sort of pat to say that we need to look at blunders. It's, it's more that we need to look at the improbable. What I mainly found in looking at these stories and interviewing these individuals is that the very opposite of what you would think it would take was just as crucial for the tried and true sort of ethos of how to achieve something great. For example, mm. when I spoke to Nobel Prize winning scientist Andrei Geim and Konstantin Novoslav, they discovered the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth. Imagine that. That's revolutionizing the electronics industry and nanotechnology. They found it through almost childlike play, so much so that when they submitted their findings to the preeminent journal Nature, it was rejected because they didn't think they could possibly have a Nobel Prize winning discovery on their hands. They had found this two-dimensional object with scotch tape and a pencil, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sarah, we're right? going to need to go to a break. Um, and we're, when we come back, I want to carry on our conversation about, you know, finding um, our achievements in the world in kind of unexpected ways. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. My guest this morning is Sarah Lewis. To learn more, please visit sarahelizabethlewis.com. On Facebook, it's Sarah Lewis The Rise. And on Twitter, Sarah Eliza Lewis. <laughs> Here come those tunes, and we will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com.
Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness, because happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast because it's kind, it's free, it's legal. It's available 24-7 on iTunes and any number of electronic outlets on the internet. And we are talking about what's getting in our way. What's getting in our way of how we perceive success or how we perceive happiness in our lives. And we're here today with Sarah, Sarah Lewis. She is a cultural historian as well as an author. She's written the book, The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure and the Search for Mastery, published by Simon and & Schuster. And prior to the break, we were talking about the strategy of discovery for Nobel Prize winners. And Sarah, you were telling a story about how they made their discoveries with scotch tape and a pencil. <laughs> exactly. I was just explaining that childlike play was as important for these preeminent scientists as serious work. You know, and that they found the first two-dimensional object on the Earth with scotch tape and a pencil, which, you know, the findings seemed so improbable that the journal rejected their, their study, which Andre Geim loved to mention in his Nobel Prize-winning speech, as you can imagine. <laughs> but what they have inaugurated is really a model for us all. It's called Friday Night Experiments, time where they permit their laboratory to engage in sort of the wonder that comes with the new perspective we all have as children. Isn't that beautiful? I, I love it. And so all of their award-winning discoveries have come from that bracketed time, 10% of their laboratory time going to serious play, as you might call it. But, but what the work has also found is that there are many other just counterintuitive ways of creating um, an endeavor that lead to a pioneering achievement. So whether it's you know, play for serious work, um, I also found that knowing when to quit you know, is as important as grit, you might say. Or, mm. And all these things are really foundational, I think, for understanding human endeavor. Um, surrender, for example, is as important as, as tenacity. And for me, it became a way of just seeing life more fully as I started to explore these different examples. Well, what I hear you talking about is a, is a new language or a new paradigm for our personal exploration. And you use the word pioneer. That was one of the words that caught my attention. And the other thing that is so important is this element of play and, and, and experiencing the world with, with that childlike curiosity and wonder and delight that stimulates not only these great discoveries, but happiness along the journey. Exactly. Exactly. The example comes to mind as you said that, and that is the explorer Ben Saunders, the first Arctic explorer to ever go to the North and South Pole, solo and on foot. And from him, I wanted to understand how he stayed happy, ultimately, you know, during this arduous feat, and how he, of course, managed to arrive at that achievement. And he talked about the power of surrender, you know. It was really beautiful to talk with him about knowing what you can control and what you can't as a way to maintain strength and fortitude. And, for example, out there, sub-60 degrees, carrying a sledge that's, you know, 20 
a 200 pounds, excuse me, on his back, dealing with Arctic flows that means that he can trudge for 12 hours one direction and have erased his gains from the day by just sleeping because the ice floats perhaps in the other direction. You know, it's mind-numbing stuff, but what he learned was ultimately that you maintain strength by just knowing what it is that you can't control and focusing only on what's going to keep you focused on your goal. That should be, or maybe it is, a universal law, right? Yeah. <laughs> to just just give it up, you know? And, and we don't mean give up. I don't think no. either of us are inferring that. No, I think surrender I see not as giving up, but giving over to something much larger, you know, than ourselves. Oh, beautifully said. Let's talk a little bit about this languaging that that, that, that you're sharing, because it really is a very uplifting, um, integrated, whole way of approaching um, the experience of living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And we do need terms to understand new models, you know, in the same way that we need figures who show us the way so that we can also walk down the path. For me, the term surrender is a very important sort of new term to to understand this distinction we just made. Um, I think we might need a new word for play, (laughs) given what the Nobel Prize winning scientists have shown us about the importance of it. There's been some incredible work done on the importance of play uh, for not just learning, which is critical, of course, but for the ability to solve problems. NASA, their Jet Propulsion Lab has found that they want all their engineers to have play history and their backgrounds. But the word play is so associated with children that we don't associate it with serious work. And Andre Geim in his Nobel Prize um, interview mentioned that, you know, adventure is maybe a cognate, but we need another word for what we're really saying, just the ability to let yourself be a deliberate amateur on the road to mastery. We need another word for what what that's all about. So that's a lot of what the work of the rise is, to get us to think differently about these key concepts. Well, I know for myself that when I go out, I am a, a mountain hiker. And when I go out and I am high up in the mountains and I am really testing the limits of my body and in that flow state, which I would love to, to chat with you about is the next uh, question, um, <laughs> I get that sense of I'm, I'm playing, I'm using my body, I am processing and, and creating while I am out there. I'm, I'm most oftentimes the best ideas come to me when I am in that state. Yep, absolutely. I think flow is at the heart of this whole concept. What is it that allows us to stay in flow? Is it what about our focus allows us to stay in flow? You know, I love the embodiment that you're describing. Um, it's, it reminds me of seeing these archers up at Columbia University and watching them practice for three hours. You know, trying to aim to hit a target and the level of flow that I saw them get into by caring and almost loving the process of trying to adjust for wind speeds, adjust for their own fatigue, you know, and pulling this bow and arrow and seeing themselves as a, in a period of kind of constant reinvention as an archer who just hit a seven, but knows they can hit a 10 and just hit a nine, but knows they can hit a 10, you know? It's really beautiful to, to watch what that flow state is about and to then model it for yourself. Indeed. And one thing I want to add about the creation of that flow state or the flow space is that when we mm-hmm. are in it, the um, daily toil of life, the things that we normal normally fret about and stress about, you know, our bills, picking up the children, um, incomplete tasks, you know, the to-do list that didn't get done, things like that seem to melt, that that, that that kind of reality is temporarily suspended so we can be fully immersed in, in the experience. We've, we're all in, in flow. Exactly. Absolutely. It's, um, you're reminding me of what happens to musicians when they improvise, what neuroscientists have found is actually happening in the brain, the sort of flow state they get into. Isn't it incredible to know that during that state, the mind is barricading itself from self-critique and self-judgment, you know, that, that kind of nagging voice that's also telling you <laughs> to, 
pay the bills and do other things so that you can have what is most closely approximated to a dreamlike state. The mind is most close to the REM state of dreaming when we're improvising. I think it's very close to the what, how we feel when we're in a period of flow. And I dare say, maybe I'm going to open a can of worms here, that there is, uh, <laughs> to me, when I'm in that state, there is the equivalency of a love experience. And I don't mean a romantic mm-hmm. love experience. It's that pure love form of there's no judgment, there is no holding back. You know, all the things that we think of when we think of being in relationship, are we loving or not being loving, when we're in that state, there is that kind of love light that is on. Absolutely. I completely agree. If love is mainly appreciation, though, we're in that moment truly appreciative for all the work that we're doing and for what we're creating. Absolutely. Let's talk about the gift of being underestimated, which is another one of your language examples, which I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, well, I, it came to me at the very end of writing the book that what mo- mainly motivated the journey was, from a very young age, feeling as if I was being underestimated for being a woman in different scenarios, for being a small woman and petite, you know, uh, for being a woman of color, all sorts of things. But what that allowed me to do was to gravitate towards and find models for myself of men and women who had achieved something incredible and were also underestimated. So my orientation, really, you know, as a teenager, began um, really through what might, some might, people might call difficult circumstances. I love it when people underestimate me now. It gives me a kind of fire, and it also puts me in lineage, I think, with all the other men and women who've gone on to create something incredible. I agree with you. I I absolutely agree with you because myself being a woman and Mm -hmm. um, being underestimated quite a bit in my Mm -hmm. life, I think that it allows me to approach life almost humorously, you know, like, okay, let, 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 let's, see, let's see what I can do here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, well, you know it's, what's interesting a, about it? No, it's no, a what? Say again? No, it's just that you can see who people really are when they underestimate you. It gives you a kind of double vision, which is also interesting. <laughs> yes, you know? agreed, agreed. Um, we are, my goodness, my goodness, we are almost out of time. I want to talk about a couple more of these little languaging bits that you've shared with us. Creating safe havens. I think that mm. is huge. It's so important, critical. You know, you have to have, you used the word dominion earlier that I love. You know, you have to have a private domain so that you can have dominion over what you are creating so that everything is embryonic when we're developing it. In the same way, we would not let an embryo out too early. We need to not release our work prematurely and give ourselves the benefit of development time um, before subjecting it to critique or allowing it to be praised. Mm. Very well said. And lastly, because we are almost out of time, let's talk about the importance of grit. This is a buzzword lately in mm-hmm. um, the news and in research about the, how important it is to be gritty, to have chutzpah. <laughs> I love it. That's right. Oh, that's great. Moxie, all these words, absolutely. Moxie. Yes, yeah. moxie is a great word. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, The University of Pennsylvania psychologist Angela Duckworth has done incredible, now MacArthur-winning work about the critical importance of grit for achievement. She's found that grit is the best predictor of achievement in educational context, more so than talent or IQ alone. And grit is the ability not just to have self-control, but to withstand failure feedback over years, even decades, in pursuit of your aim so grit is critical, but what's also important is to be nimble about it, to know when you might need to quit, in fact, right? And that's what she and I spent some time talking about in, in The Rise over the few years that I interviewed her. Nimble, that is another great word. And we could probably do 
a whole other segment on on nimbleness. So we're going to have to <laughs> save that for our next visit. I want to thank you for being with us today. To learn oh, more, pleasure. please visit sarahelizabethlewis.com. On Facebook, Sarah Lewis, The Rise. And on Twitter, it's Sarah El- Eliza or Eliza Lewis. Mm-hmm. And you will find all of those um, uh, social media buttons on Sarah Elizabeth Lewis's main website, sarahelizabethlewis.com. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we are going to carry on this conversation with Eric Maisel. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and please, please, please share this podcast because sharing is caring. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Oh, likewise. Have a beautiful day. You too. Thanks. Here come the tunes. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast. Why? Because it's kind. It's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7 on iTunes and a plethora of other downloadable opportunities. And, and we're talking today about failure, mastery, and life purpose. And my next guest is really a master in all of these areas. His name is Dr. Eric Mizell. He is a licensed psych- psychotherapist and the author of A Life Purpose Bootcamp and numerous other titles, including Mastering Creative Anxiety, Brainstorm, Coaching the Artist Within, and Rethinking Depression. Dr. Mizell became a California licensed family therapist and worked exclusively with creative and performing artists. In time, he moved from therapy and the medical model to coaching, where he founded the profession of creative creativity coaching and this is really important and very different and I'll explain why. Many of us when we have uh, an issue with depression, sadness, life challenges, we run to our therapist and we run to our therapist trying to explore the why we do what we do and reach deep back into the emotional recesses of our minds to solve a present day problem which is not a bad idea, but oftentimes when we show up at that therapist's office over our lifetimes, we present with that same problem over and over and over again with just a different cast of characters or circumstances. And what I find so valuable about a coaching model, which I use in my own practice, is it's very mission-driven. It's really about self-discovery. It's about creating intentions, actions, plans, and it's client-driven. So it allows the client to really drive the direction of his or her life based on a very proactive model. So I welcome with great enthusiasm Dr. Eric Mizell to our conversation. Good morning, Eric. Hi, Lisa. It's wonderful to be with you. Oh, I am happy. Ah, well, you know what? My guess is that you are happy because you're on purpose. I think that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny how that goes hand in hand, or maybe not so funny. 
No, I don't think it is so funny. Uh, we, of course, have tons to talk about, but that may be one of the headlines that life purposes are choices. Folks often forget that they won't have any life purposes if they haven't made some choices about life purposes. But when you make them, then you are in a better position to make yourself proud and live the life you intend to lead. And by doing all of that, become happier. You say that meaning, and I'm doing a little air quote around the word meaning, is a life purpose. What is the connection between the two? Most people don't have a very clear idea of what meaning signifies, what that word signifies. I believe it's merely, again in air quotes, merely a certain kind of psychological experience. It's not some objective thing out there at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet or in some book. It's a certain kind of psychological experience. And sometimes it comes inadvertently, like when we look up at the night sky and have some feeling of awe or grandeur or meaning. And sometimes it comes more mindfully because we make some investment in something that we think will provoke the psychological experience of meaning, like writing our novel or being of service or being an activist, and we get that experience. So when you begin to understand that meaning is a certain kind of psychological experience that you can cultivate and maybe even create, then first of all, you realize that you never have to run out of meaning again, that it's something for you to create, and then we're moving towards the paradigm shift from seeking meaning, which is the paradigm of thousands of years, to what I think is the better paradigm of making meaning. That That's one of our charges, is to make meaning. And then we can say the following sentence, which uh, begins to make sense when you understand all of that, and that is that one of my life purposes is to cultivate the experience of meaning. And one of the ways to do that is to create what I call a menu of meaning opportunities, namely actually make a list of those things that you've experienced as meaningful in life. It may be a surprising list. The big ticket items that you thought would be meaningful in life maybe weren't, like that PhD in archaeology or something. And then the small things like, you know, talking with your crazy Aunt Rose, that those may be the really meaningful things in life. When we begin to understand what actually cultivates the experience of meaning in us, then we have a better shot at naming our life purposes. I think you are spot on with the the air quoted meaning, and and I and I work with a lot of people who have experienced trauma, who are depressed, who have been addicted to various substances, and when I bring up this topic of making meaning, created creating meaning out of their journey, something happens, and I know you know exactly what I'm describing, that there is a paradigm shift in thinking, or at least there is the opportunity for that shift to begin from victim consciousness to one of uh, self-mastery or the beginnings of a better self-mastered life. Yes, I entirely agree. Of course, then the work begins if, if the work is, let's say, writing your memoir then you're stuck with the huge challenge of actually writing a book and all of those difficulties. But once you announce your life purposes to yourself, and if one of them is, I intend to heal through writing, or, or I intend to work on a personality upgrade, I need to become the person I want to become in order to do the work I want to do. There are lots of different ways of saying it, but once you strongly announce your life purposes, and, and this is a big and, figure out how to get them onto your daily to-do list. It's one thing to know your life purposes. It's another thing to never get to them. So once those two things happen where you can identify your life purposes and figure out how to get them on your daily to-do list, then you do feel um, much stronger in life, actually more passionate about life. You maybe suddenly have some hope that you didn't have yesterday. And as a uh, Existential therapists like to say it is it is hope that, that we're striving for as, as therapists, renewed hope for the client, more hope than some of the other sorts of things like insight that traditional therapy has talked about. We need folks to feel a little more hopeful, and knowing your life purposes helps with that. And let's say we've identified our life purposes. You know, we say, you know, we've got the list of things that 
create meaning for us. How do we coach people to begin to action that list, to make it happen, to go from the idea and the intention to the action and execution? It starts with the idea of negotiating each day, that each day is a negotiation, you with yourself, and you make decisions about where you're going to make meaning investments in that day, what kind of meaning opportunities you're going to seize, and also which portions of the day you can remain in meaning neutral, where you just run errands or check things off your to-do list. And those are times, meaning neutral times, where you don't pester yourself about the meaningfulness of life. So your day begins to take on a different kind of coloration of meaning investment periods and times when you don't worry about the meaningfulness of life. If you were to start your day with a meaning morning check-in, just a few seconds, where you, just, where you say to yourself, okay, where do I want to invest meaning today? Where do, what, how do I want to turn my abstract life purposes into something concrete to do today? When you begin to have that kind of morning conversation with yourself, that's A, and B, where you then move into your main practice. I think probably everybody needs an hour practice of some sort before their real day begins, whether it's a creativity practice or meditation, exercise, tai chi, whatever it is, that thing that supports meaning in them and supports their life purposes, if you can go directly from a morning meaning check-in where you mindfully think about your day to a practice that serves you, you'll have started your day off in a good way. You will feel, you'll have the experience of having made some meaning on that day already by virtue of your practice. And then the rest of the day can be kind of half meaningless and you won't get depressed. This is a different way to live from just going through the motions each day. Well, the, the mindful component is very strong. The ritualistic component I, is what I hear is present. And I love that, you know, creating a ritual in the morning where you get up and you um, celebrate the day in some way, whether it is the meditation practice, the exercise, wh whatever, whatever it is for the individual. I think this also helps anchor this sense of meaning that you're describing. Yes, and I, I believe in ceremonies and rituals and also all kinds of tools. I don't think we have enough strategies and tactics and tools to keep us going. So I advise in Life Purpose Boot Camp some, some kinds of activities or strategies of the following sort. One is to actually try to create a life purpose statement. You probably can't do this in the next two seconds. It takes a lot of thought to come up with a string of words that actually represents to you how you want to live your life. I suggest some kinds of phrases like just doing the next right thing as a life purpose statement or making value-based meaning, but folks need to come up with their own life purpose statement. That's one kind of strategy. And another is one that I'm really enjoying chatting with folks about, and that's the idea of a life purpose icon that you create for yourself and maybe even fabricate. Just the way a cross holds so much meaning, so much information for a Christian or Star of David holds so much information and meaning for a Jew. Most individuals never think of creating some kind of icon like that that does personal work and that helps you understand what you stand for. So I'm having lots of folks, or rather lots of folks are wanting to work on creating their life purpose icon as a way to keep their life purposes close. It's one of our one of the tragedies of the species is that even if we understand what our life purposes are, they tend to vanish and three years pass or nine years pass, and we realize that we haven't been doing much in the service of our life purposes for that whole time. This is brilliant, and I am going to uh, make a note to myself to do this because I also know the value of talisman, and we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, maybe we can chat about this a little bit more because there is something in the talisman or the good luck charm that reemphasizes that sense of hope, belief, faith, and makes us feel that we're in control of our lives. So if you're willing to go there with me, Eric, I would love to revisit this because it's, it's important and it can be very, very helpful. Yep. Happy to go back there. Wonderful. We are going to go to a break to learn more about Eric Maisel. Please visit ericmaisel.com. On Facebook, he is also Eric Maisel with a hyphen between the two words. And on Twitter, Eric Maisel. Here come the tunes and we will be right back. I wanted to fight 
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. This is Buzz Local Radio. We have the three topics here, and we just added a fourth because we started talking about hot dogs. He's in a band. We both had guitars, so I went over to his house Christmas Day. That so day. We had to start a band. And uh, I think we wrote four or five that songs that afternoon. And Cannibalistic Fish was one of them. Cannibalistic Fish. I couldn't do the dreads. My mom would not oh, let me wear my pants backwards sorry. to school either. That was wiggity, 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 wack. Yeah. Buzz Local Radio. Available for free download on toginet.com. That's T-O-G-I-N-E-T dot com. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness, because happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I'm speaking with Eric Maisel, who is a licensed psychotherapist and also a prolific author of more than 40 books. And we're talking about Life Purpose Boot Camp, as well as Rethinking Depression. And prior to the break, um, Eric was talking about how he encourages his clients to create a life purpose statement and also an icon, an actual talisman tchotchka is the word that comes to my mind but it's more than a tchotchka (laughs) much more than a tchotchka (laughs) much more than a tchotchka but but a very personalized something something that anchors this being on point and being on meaning for oneself yeah i think the headline is how much time gets lost through ordinary living and how we need to do a much better job of reminding ourselves of how we want to represent ourselves in the world, what we want to get out of life. So anything that helps with that, we've talked about two things, you know, the icon and a life purpose statement. You could be sending yourself timed emails to remind yourself of how you want to represent yourself and what you want to get done in life. There are all kinds of mechanisms technological mechanism that you might use to keep reminding yourself of what the next right thing is. I just happen to like the life purpose icon as sort of standing maybe a little head and shoulders above all the different kinds of ways we might remind ourselves because there's so much power in a simple visual representation. And my clients come up with, just as you would imagine, all sorts of things from, you know, an acorn to a walking stick to a lighthouse, to a spider's web, to a this, to a that. And whatever they come up with virtually has no meaning to me, (laughs) would not be my life purpose icon, but holds tons of both information and emotional resonance for them. So I do see it's, it's a tremendously simple idea. It's just to land on some visual representation that reminds you of who you want to be and how you want to live. Beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about modern ailments, you know, depression, anxiety, insomnia, addiction, um, the, the ep- really who we're experiencing this in epidemic proportions globally. And how can we use this life purpose um, coaching modality to help better manage these afflictions? Well, it's a super large subject, of course. Um, one of the places I would want to start is with the out loud wonder as to whether there are any mental disorders. There's a debate 
a large debate going on in the mental health community as to whether there really are any mental disorders or whether they are just labels handed to you after you present certain experiences and behaviors. The head of the National Institute of Mental Health came out recently and said something which no one can seem to hear. They hear the words, but they don't get what he's trying to say. And he said, there is no such thing as depression or schizophrenia or the other mental disorder labels we are using. He's, of course, not saying we're not having the experiences of sadness or despair or anxiety or hearing voices or whatever the experiences are. He's just saying that adding the label doesn't help us. And then turning to chemicals with powerful effects called medicine doesn't help us necessarily either. I, of course, have to put a parenthesis here and make sure that no one thinks I'm saying get off your meds. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to say in shorthand that we have a lot to look at with respect to what's going on and to the kind of transaction that goes on when you enter a therapist's office. You go in and you say, I'm sad, and you're handed back the clinical depression label, and one has to wonder how that happened. What, what kind of transaction was it that you came in with something like despair or anguish or sadness, and you're handed back a pseudo-medical a pseudo label? So we have a ton of things to talk about there if we had the time, but let me just go directly to the thing that you asked about, and that is most therapy doesn't ask, most therapists do not ask you the question, what are your life purposes or how do you make meaning in life? They're interested in other sorts of questions, other sorts of history taking. It's really only existential therapy that asks such questions, and even there it's not asked very often. So it turns out it's on our shoulders. I'm not sure we can get it from our therapist. We can get it from our coach, less likely to get it from our therapist. It's on our shoulders to decide what our life purposes are and how we intend to make meaning and to remind ourselves that in the therapy model, we may never hear about life purpose and meaning. It's only in the coaching model that we're likely to hear about such ideas. And these ideas are terrifically important to us I think it's one of the reasons why coaching may be more valuable to a person than therapy. I couldn't agree with you more. I, in my own experience in dealing with um, addiction and, and, and depression and insomnia and anxiety and all the things that, that we just spoke of, in my own practice, when I introduce, you know, the, the concepts of life purpose, li living, you know, uh, uh, for a mission, you know, making meaning out of what happened in the past and the choice to create something better for the future, the control, when someone feels that their life is seemingly out of control, it does give them a modicum of control back. And then choice plays a huge role. And it helps people remember that they matter. It's, yeah. it's a rather super large idea. Either you kind of feel like you matter or you kind of feel like you don't matter. And a lot of people are throwing themselves away in various ways because in some really quite deep place, they don't believe they much matter. They kind of think they're just excited matter that's going to pass in the universe. Even if they're spiritual or religious Every, every contemporary person knows enough about science and evolution and what have you to have kind of a core feeling that we just come and go and that we don't matter that much. So it turns out that it's on our shoulders to don that mantle for ourselves, the belief that we do matter at least to ourselves. And an example I use sometimes is in the days before D-Day, we don't really care how Eisenhower is feeling. We don't care if he's depressed or anxious or anything. We want him to get the invasion off on the right foot. We want him to do the invasion well. That's what we want. We need him to do his important work. The problem for us is we don't feel our work is that important. We don't feel like we're organizing any kind of D-Day invasion. Therefore, we can be more careless with our lives because we're not doing anything important enough, in quotes. But we have to change our mind about that and decide that our life is important and that it does matter. And when we do that, we, of course, retrieve some instrumentality, but we also retrieve passion and purpose and all kinds of words that stand for a way of being that 
we really want to cultivate. You write uh, a blog for Psychology Today online entitled Rethinking Psychology. And I think that what you've just shared really plays into that theme, that in the past, when we report to our therapists for um, consultation, we're trying to figure out the why something happened. You know, we're, right. we're, look, we're looking back in history. We're viewing life through the rearview mirror. And what I like about what you're doing and development, developing currently with natural psychology is it's a much more proactive, pr present-minded and forward-thinking model of, of healing and being in the world. That's right. And there are many reasons why I think this is the, so to speak, right way to go. But one may interest folks, and that is trying to, trying to look retrospectively must include trying to figure out our what I call our original personality. I, I have the belief that personality can be thought of as made up of three things, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And without going into this model a lot, because original personality matters, who we are when we come upon this earth, what our original blueprint is matters, and we can't know what it is. So we're stuck with this huge not knowing. Does anyone, you, you will remember that in the Middle Ages, folks thought that human beings came in four flavors, one of which was melancholic. That is, folks thought that a quarter of the world came in, into life already a little sad. So what if you are one of those people, let's say that there's some truth to that, and you're one of those people who came into the world a little sad. Well, you have to deal with that now. There's nothing to investigate as to why you're sad, because you may have been born with a certain proclivity or a certain temperament, certain worldview. So when we get a clearer picture on how little we can possibly know about original personality, then we also have a better sense of why we must look at today and tomorrow rather than yesterday. I, I'm, sh I'm shaking my head. I'm, I'm closing my eyes and it's like music to my ears what you're saying because it, 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 this way of thinking, this way of being in the world is so much more comfortable. I think that that is what I really appreciate about this paradigm shift. It, it allows the client to just be more at ease in his or, or her own skin. I think that's true because I think if once you settle into the idea of I don't know who exactly I was at birth, I don't know exactly all of the things that happened to me, I don't exactly know how one thing can relate to another thing, what I can do is make use of my available personality. And if you're, if you're in the throes of an addiction or what have you, you're going to have less available personality than if you weren't in the throes of that addiction, etc. So there's a big personality upgrade for each person that's necessary and also dealing with actual circumstances that's necessary. There's not a lot that's going to improve your, let's say, worldview or what have you if you're stuck in a job you hate 60 hours a week. There's something about that that you're going to have to wrestle with directly. So there's a lot to think about here. But once you sort of understand what sort of species we are, what being human means, and the sorts of things we need to do to uh, make ourselves proud, then I do think that we get more comfortable on our own skin and can do some of the things we've been chatting about. We are out of time, and I would love to invite you back to continue our, our conversation and speak of your uh, natural psychology and the new psychology of meaning that articulates this paradigm shift that we're speaking of. To learn more about Dr. Eric Maisel, please visit ericmaisel.com on Facebook, Eric Maisel with a hyphen between the two names, and then on Twitter, the handle is also Eric Maisel. Dr. Eric Maisel, thank you for being here with me today on Purpose with Meaning and quite clearly Huge Heart. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. It is our pleasure and honor to present to you the most amazing thinkers and doers in the world each and every week. And I want to share with you a few thoughts before we part as we do each week. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world 
with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Sarah Lewis and Eric Mizell, wishing you kind words, kind thoughts, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And a quick shout-out of gratitude to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We really, really appreciate you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.